Oh, Dimon, the decline and fall of Dmitry Medvedev, and what we can learn from it. I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash shadows. But now, on with today's programme. So this coming week, I'm traveling in the States in both chilly Boston, Massachusetts and tropical Gainesville, Florida. Packing was quite a challenge. And so there may be a a one week hiatus before my next podcast. And so in order to fill the gap, I wanted to just talk a little bit about Dmitry Medvedev. Now, this week I published an online piece for The Spectator magazine on Medvedev's latest uh, bizarre pronouncements, of which there is an unending flow. And that sparked a few other conversations about precisely what we could read into that, what it could could tell us about late Putinism. And so I thought I'd devote a a short episode to unpacking not just uh, Dimon's own decline, but also exactly those those wider lessons. Because the interesting thing is precisely that at one point he seemed to be the, uh, the great hope for a kind of liberal, technocratic, gentler form of Putinism, shall we say. And indeed, the West, and particularly the United States, treated him quite seriously in that role. And in some ways, that actually represented one of the worst things that could be done for him. So let's, let's just track back and, and talk a little bit, first of all, about how he got to where he is now, which is uh, an essentially almost comical, were it not horrifying, example of when politics meets your racist uncle. And obviously I I have nothing against your uncle in particular. So Medvedev was a lawyer by training, well like Putin but unlike Putin. I mean they both went to Leningrad State University but for Putin this was clearly just simply a route to the KGB whereas actually Medvedev seemed to have been serious about being a lawyer. In that role, he got to know and became friends with Putin in the 1990s in St. Petersburg. And in due course, Medvedev will be brought in to run Putin's first presidential election campaign in 2000. And following that was his chief of staff, 2003 to 2005, and then was made deputy prime minister. You know, clearly this is a man whom Putin trusted. And you know, it was interesting that we have to remember the degree to which, you know, certainly the early 2000s were ones in which, indeed, many Russian liberals, real liberals, shall we say, thought that Putin might be one of theirs, not for long, but for a while. And you know, this was a time in which there were a whole variety of different intellectual and political strands within the broad church of Putin. So, yes, we, we had the Ultra Hawks, who were you know, particularly busy with the ghastly scorched earth pacification campaign in Chechnya. 
But we also had liberals who were in, you know, or shall I say technocrats rather, who were indeed embracing new connectivities with the West, everything from, yes, the new toys. You know, we know that Medvedev would become reviled for his blogging, his enjoying of his iPad and such like, which among us does not enjoy their iPad. Um, but, you know, it carried with it also elements of the less superficial. And in particular, Medvedev, one of the interesting themes of his time before he was for a while president was his emphasis on the struggle against legal, legal nihilism. In other words, the sense that not that necessarily Russia had to be a liberal democratic state, but at least it had to operate within its own laws. And this was something that uh, became really quite significant during his period as president, 2008 to 2012. And again, you know, if we're talking about the, the struggle against legal nihilism, it, it's interesting this odd form of legalism that we see with Putin as well. You know, he could have just ignored or changed the term limits, which basically said, no, he, had, he could only do two back-to-back -back terms as president. But instead, what he did was he decided to notionally step down, bring in Dmitry Medvedev as his kind of sock puppet chair warmer, if I can mix my metaphors, president, with Putin as prime minister and eminence Gris behind the scenes, particularly actually what they did was essentially transfer control of the security apparatus to the prime minister's position for the duration. So Medvedev was, I won't quite say president in name only, but certainly he was a very diminished figure and his actual control was relatively limited. But nonetheless, it's striking that we saw things change and not just in terms of the atmospherics. One of, for me, the, again, given my own interests, particularly interesting aspect of that was, for example, the new law on the Federal Security Service which on the one hand was actually rather more draconian than the law it replaced. It gave the FSB wider powers and such like. However, this is the point that it shows, I think, Medvedev's commitment to legalism. There was a relatively liberal old law that was completely and routinely ignored. So instead what he did is try and create a situation in which actually the laws could better reflect what the FSB was going to be doing anyway, and frankly also rein in some of the most egregious excesses of the agency. So yes, it looked like a less liberal law, but it actually embodied an interesting, if not liberal, but at least legalistic principle, that even authoritarianisms need to have and follow their own laws. So, you know, there were these little signs of potentiality. Now, of course, the Medvedev era, I mean, in, in foreign policy terms, seemed to be quite incoherent. You had the signing of the New START nuclear agreement with the West, well, with the United States, rather, which Putin has very recently suspended. But one also had the war against Georgia. That incoherence is, in part, I think, a sign of the degree to which Russia itself wasn't yet sure quite what its relationship with the West needed to be. I mean, we'd had Putin's Munich speech. Clearly, some early kind of honeymoon era had, had ended. But nonetheless, we were nowhere near the kind of confrontationalism of the present day. So there was a genuine incoherence in policy. But there was also the fact that we actually had 
in effect, to presidents handling foreign policy. And it's quite interesting, something I talk about in my Osprey book, Five Day War, about the war in Georgia. But going back, uh, there's in, in the memoirs of one Russian general, or rather, or rather the account of one Russian general, he says about how Putin needed to get on the phone to give Medvedev a bit of a kicking to actually get him to properly commit the troops once the, the necessary provocation had been uh, generated and Russia had its excuse to go to war with, with Georgia. So even at that point, Medvedev was the guy who had formally to give the orders, but ultimately when it came to something like this, it was Putin who actually had to bring pressure to bear to get him to issue those orders. And we also had the situation in Libya, where Russia was persuaded not to block a UN resolution, which allowed for air attacks, notionally in order to protect innocent civilians against the forces of Colonel Gaddafi, but which was then used as a pretext for a much wider air campaign. And this is one of the things that frankly brought an end to Medvedev's uh, hopes of continuing in power and arguably actually sort of spells the end of Medvedev as a genuinely independent actor. Because Putin was both furious because he felt that, that Russia had been duped with a sort of bait and switch. And honestly, I don't think he's entirely wrong. But also he was furious with Medvedev for, as he felt it, being duped. And the fact that the United States in particular was quite keen to basically support the idea of Medvedev as a, not just a, a temporary stand-in, but a successor of Putin's, probably also contributed to Putin's decision to return. Look, see, I genuinely think that when this whole process started in 2008, from Putin's point of view, he was ambivalent about whether he wanted to return to the presidency or not. In some ways, this was a very long on-the-job interview one that obviously ultimately Medvedev failed. But the interesting thing is that both Medvedev and Putin are, of course, or were, of course, surrounded by people with their own interests. It's clear that Medvedev's entourage was pushing him to actually stand in a contested election against Putin. In other words, you know, I try and make Russian democracy something real. Well, likewise, there were many around Putin who had benefited from his largesse, who were very worried and unhappy about the thought of, of Medvedev becoming a real grown-up president, and who were clearly whispering poison. No, whispering poison. They, they were dripping poison, or they were whispering lies, you name it. Anyway, who were clearly counselling Putin that he needed to return, that he was indispensable and such like. And, well, I think this was very much going with the grain of Putin's own grandiosity, so he himself decided that no. The experiment was not a success, and... Putin had to return. And Medvedev, I mean, ultimately, he, he seems to have been toying at one point with a challenge. We particularly saw that when he started to talk much more broadly and openly and programmatically about foreign and security policy, which is, after all, still what was very much regarded as Putin's bailiwick. He started to wear a leather jacket in a deeply, deeply unconvincing attempt to look like a tough guy. He turned up on the contested Kuril Islands, way, way off, you know, contested between Russia and Japan, and gave some sort of tough, tough speeches there, which again you know, made it look as if he was metaphorically parking his rhetorical tanks on Putin's lawn. When it came down to it, though, if Putin has a strength, and 
as regular listeners would know, I'm not especially impressed by many of Putin's notional uh, abilities. But nonetheless, he does have a pretty good handle on reading people and knowing how to control, manipulate and use them. And I think, you know, he had ultimately got Medvedev's number. Medvedev backed away. You know, you know he really wasn't willing to actually go all the way and challenge Putin. He was uh, had to give this, frankly, quite demeaning speech nominating Putin to be his successor as well as his predecessor, saying how much better the job Putin would be. Um, you know, he, he, honestly, he wasn't really allowed much dignity in that process. And back came Putin in a process which inevitably generated public protest, which Putin in turn interpreted as actually the results of Western subversion. And on we go. Uh, really, it is when Putin returns... And the protests around the so-called, particularly the Balotnaya protests, I think very much for Putin make him feel that he is in a war with the West, that the West is coming to get him through its colour revolutions, hybrid war techniques. So the fall of, of Medvedev is in many ways also the start of, if only we'd known it at the time, our own war with the West, and certainly it was an end to that hope of a kindler, gentler Putinism. And Medvedev, with his sort of much-professed passion for Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath and his iPad and such like, well, he was made Prime Minister. And it's, a, it's, it's an odd situation. Back when Medvedev was, was president, there was a, a joke going the rounds which came out in a, a leaked US diplomatic cable which is Medvedev sits in the driver's seat of a new car, examines the inside, the instrument panel and the pedals. He looks around, but there's no steering wheel. And he turns to Putin and asks Vladimir Vladimirovich, where's the steering wheel? And Putin pulls out a remote control from his pocket and says, I'll be the one doing the driving. I mean, like most political jokes, it's not actually very funny. But the point is, it says something about not just the situation, but people's perceptions of the situation. You know, people have had a pretty good idea that Putin was in charge. But, of course, Putin had been prime minister. Now he was president again. And this was a situation in which, again, in hindsight, we see that it wasn't just simply that the, the additional temporary powers of control of the security apparatus and so forth, which had been transferred to the, the White House, ironically, the building which houses the Russian prime minister's offices, um, that was handled to move temporarily to Putin's control and then return to the presidency when Putin returned to the presidency, it's clear that that proved to be, shall we say, a sticky process, and a certain number of other powers and perquisites of the Prime Minister moved back to the Kremlin with Putin. So, if anything, the, the Prime Minister's job arguably became less important after that interregnum than anything else. But anyway, Medvedev was going to be in that role for the next eight years. But it's clear that it's not just that the job had changed, but that Medvedev himself had changed. Um, I remember one Western diplomat in 2015 who had had quite a bit of personal contact with Medvedev saying there's something broken in him now. And there was that sense that he basically, having chosen to back down from any kind of a challenge to Putin, didn't really have, have much in him now. He was, you know... Uh, moderately competent functionary. He did okay. But the point is, what was he doing? The job of the Prime Minister had changed. 
really it it became nothing more than the major domo that the head butler the czar has his court his guests his cronies and they're all partying upstairs the head butler's job is to make sure that all the staff are you know kept in line below stairs people know their place and keep the estate running so that the party can continue upstairs occasionally he gets invited up for a snifter of brandy with the boss but from this point on it's pretty clear that he's not a putin crony and what's more this is a time in which there is this new aggressive nationalist mood that is beginning to kind of pervade the Tsar's court. And obviously, particularly after 2013-2014, you have the Euromaidan, which, remember, is interpreted as a power grab by the West, an attempt to basically launch a coup d'etat to seize Russia, sorry, to seize Ukraine from Russia's grip. And the annexation of Crimea, the undeclared conflict in the Donbass, you know, so it goes. And at this point, increasingly, orthodoxy becomes hawkishness. And at, at this time, Medvedev is not really coming out so strongly on this line. I mean, you know, now we hear these extraordinarily toxic, ultra-nationalist statements coming from Medvedev. But that's a relatively recent thing. And in particular, it follows his next big transition in 2020. He... Well, he, I mean, notionally speaking, he voluntarily steps away from the prime minister's position because the whole cabinet kind of resigns to allow President Putin to choose a new one. In practice, it's it's clear that you know he he was resigned, shall we say? Mikhail Mishustin comes in, a very different kind of figure, but it does leave Putin with a bit of a quandary. You know, this whole business of what do you do with a problem like Medvedev? You know, Putin does have this odd but strong loyalty to his own if you are a good soldier if you basically do what's expected of you then putin will not leave you out in the cold and the thing was Medvedev hadn't done anything wrong he just wasn't really the guy that putin needed at that stage anymore so there, there was talk about all kinds of options um you know rector of a university in st petersburg a position on the, in the supreme court remember he's a lawyer after all by background but in practice, and I still don't know if it's because Medvedev didn't want to move outside of the Moscow power circle, or, or whether ultimately just none of these sort of worked out. But anyway, eventually what happens is Putin gives Medvedev a, a totally new and totally undefined role as deputy chair of the Security Council. That's deputy to Putin in chairing what is meant to be one of the sort of the key bodies bringing together all the people involved in security matters broadly conceptualized now the interesting thing is if, if one looks at the foundational documents the, the the law on the security council there is no mention of a deputy chair and that is still unchanged there is no specific remit for a deputy chair he's medvedev is given you know a few new uh interdepartmental subcommittees to chair on voguish new security topics like environmental issues and indeed epidemics, which uh, then gets ignored once the epidemic issue becomes a serious one. But the main thing is that actually his authority is not in any way enhanced, quite the opposite. Security Council Secretary Nikolai Patrushev, who after all is truly coming into his own now as policy becomes that much more confrontational, that much more aggressive towards the outside world in general and the West in particular, 
is not a man who is likely to, and makes it clear that he won't, kowtow to Medvedev. No one really thinks this is going to be a serious job. It's noteworthy, for example, how few of Medvedev's own team actually choose to join him when he makes the move across to Ipachevsky Alley, which is where the offices of the Security Council Secretariat are. You know, all he really does is bring over a few kind of PR people, I think, more than anything else. And in my Spectator uh, article, I say that this actually puts the increasingly depressed Medvedev in the position of class nerd forced to sit at the jock's table. He certainly is now surrounded by a very different type of person. I mean, the Security Council Secretariat, it's still largely made up of civilians or retired or former, rather, um, officers from the security apparatus. There are also a lot of seconded military police and security types there. These are not the kind of crowd with which Medvedev has ever run in the past. And it's clear that they have no great esteem for the man. So long as Patrushev makes it clear that he's not playing, paying attention to Medvedev, why should any of his, his functionaries? At this time, and look, again, it's hard to actually sort of put a specific date on it, but Medvedev is becoming an increasingly heavy drinker, um, and this is pretty widely known. I mean, there's sort of all, all kinds of unfair terms. Uh, Dmitry Alkogolovich, you know, Dmitry, son of alcohol, um, is one of the ways he, he's termed. But in particular, this is where he really shifts to trying to increasingly rebrand himself as not just a hawk, but the hawkiest of hawks. Because, again, I think he's, he's trying to fit in with this crowd and has to overcompensate because they already approach him with suspicion, thinking, well, thinking back to things like Libya, but also generally regarding him as a sort of rather effete little technocrat. And, you know, fr from this point, we, we have an increasing trajectory towards almost lunacy. And if one looks at his various characterizations, I mean, look, most recently with the decision of the International Criminal Court to uh, issue an arrest warrant on Vladimir Putin for war crimes. The, mo the official line was that, look, this is an irrelevance, that this, this warrant has no true international standing, it's essentially a, a political act, and, and we will ignore it. That's the high ground. Medvedev, on the other hand, is essentially saying that if any country tries to actually uh, you know, assert this warrant, then it will be considered to be an act of war, and that if need be, a ship, a, a Russian sort of warship out in the, the seas could target the ICC building with a missile. I mean, this is the point. He is, in some ways, becoming the sort of the primal id of the Putin regime. The person who says the most extreme things that everyone else knows they really ought not to be saying. So basically, you know, he, he has periodically threatened that uh, the Russians may well turn to nuclear weapons against Ukraine. The so-called crazy Nazi drug addicts in, in Ukraine who are backed with Westerners with drool running down their chins from degeneracy. Because after all, you know, as we all know, the, the special military operation, you know, it's not actually about denazification. It is a campaign to, as he put it, foil the supreme leader of hell, whatever name he uses, Satan, Lucifer or Iblis. He believes that emigres uh, you know, who criticize the regime in Russia ought to be stripped of their right to return back to the country. 
unless, of course, they then make sort of public repentance and also their assets inside Russia seized. Broadly speaking, though, the question is this. I mean, is this just some drunk who presumably drunk telegrams? Because it's worth noting, after all, that his, his messages on telegram, they are spelt correctly. They are grammatically accurate. No, they are not the equivalent of a drunk's 3 a.m. social media posts. Is it that this is what he's meant to be doing? What is it that he's going on? Well, I think there are four processes that are worth discussing, and I will, right after the break. Just the usual reminder, you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. You can support it by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the show. So what can be learned from watching the downward trajectory of poor Dima? Well, first of all, I think it does emphasise the degree to which political control has indeed shifted to the Hawks. And that this is a process which obviously, you know, has now reached a you know, truly momentous stage since February of 2022, but is, is one that has been going on longer. And as I say, I think really we can date it back to Balotnaya. And in this context, someone who is weak and yet he's still grasping on to some kind of political position with his fingertips feels the need to respond to that. Now, I think, you know, Medvedev has done it in a particularly extreme and unimpressively over-the-top way, but I don't think he's unique in that. I think one of the interesting things that we can do is look at a whole variety of other political leaders and see how that they have responded to the, the Hawkwood shift. Now, in some cases, it's as far as possible to ignore it, with occasional high-profile genuflections. And if we look at both Mishustin and Moscow Mayor Sabyanin, I think this is very much the approach they have taken. That essentially, you know, as long as, every, you know, as, long as they don't do anything against the Hawk agenda, and as long as every now and then they, they say the right things, they you know, go to a particular festival or whatever, then in a way they, they tick that box, but they can carry on with it. But the point is they can do that because A, they are actually competent in a way that Medvedev was not and is not, but perhaps more importantly that they have a power base that Medvedev had never really managed to develop. So, you know, they are strong enough to be able to, I wouldn't say stand against this particular current but uh, to, to be able to still chart their own course. Then we have others who, in effect, have tried to duck out of the whole process. I mean, obviously, a certain number of the oligarchs, people like uh, Alexei Kudrin, the former finance minister and then head of the accounts chamber, who now seems to have moved into business in, in, in Yandex. And then thirdly, we have the people who instead have tried to reinvent themselves or at least kind of redefine their politics. And we particularly see this, I think, with, for example, the slightly weaker regional bosses, people like Minikhanov in Tatarstan, Byaklov in St. Petersburg and, and such like. People who you know, really weren't interested but now seem to feel the need to much more sort of overtly demonstrate their, their commitment to, to the Hawk agenda. 
And, you know, Medvedev, I think, is a particularly ludicrous and over-the-top example, but he is precisely the outlier in a much, much wider process that's taking place. So we can, in some ways, almost, I, I would say, chart the, the, the transition of the, of the central sort of line of Russian politics through Medvedev's in, in sort of social media outlet, output. And that says something, I think, secondly, about the essentially chameleonic nature of politics in, in late Putinism. The point is this. Just as Putin can't now, I would say, step away from the presidency without running the risk of being scapegoated, or at least without assuming that he runs the risk of being scapegoated, because everyone is a ruthless, self-interested opportunist, himself included, well, generally speaking, I think this applies across the board. I mean, one of, one of the interesting characteristics of the old Soviet era was precisely, and I'll come on to this more in a moment, was the degree to which it became a gerontocracy ruled by the old, precisely because it never really worked out a way in which those people who had acquired power and all the privileges that went with it could step away from that power with not just safety, but also with a sufficiently high quality of life. Your dacha, your driver, all of the perks, you, the um, nice food you get from the, the Kremlin canteen, which Kremlin canteen sounds like there's a bunch of people standing in line with trays, but in some ways it was a full-service delivery gastronome which could you know, bring you meals and whatever else. Um, you know, all of this relied on your job. And therefore, people stayed in their job long before, long past the point where they really ought to have been in it. Well, in a different way, this is what we're seeing with, with the Putin era. Not so much that people don't have their own independent wealth. Um, Navalny's team, in their infamous, you know, he is not demon to you video, put together a, a very uh, comprehensive and, uh, frankly, eye-opening expose of all the various palaces and vineyards and so forth that, that Medvedev has, has now got. So no, he's clearly, like all of the other figures at the top of this system, made himself rich courtesy of the opportunities for extracurricular enrichment that Putinism provides. It's more about security. Your position within politics gives you your krisha, your roof, your protection. Without that, who knows what could happen to you? You could be, just like any oligarch, tremendously rich today and all of a sudden impoverished and behind bars the day after, simply because you fell foul of the wrong person or someone actually thought that that was a very nice vineyard and they'd like to have it, or anything like that. So, you know, people have to constantly shift and recreate themselves unless they have a truly powerful independent base. And someone like Kadyrov actually is although he himself has also sort of shifted his mode of legitimation slightly. But nonetheless, you know, basically he has Chechnya as his power base. No one can take that away from him. Most people are not so, I hesitate to use the word fortunate, I don't think I'd like to be in charge of Chechnya. But anyway, most people do not have that luxury. And therefore, you know, what they have to do is precisely, in this respect, it's kind of, and it's always an unfortunate parallel to use, but it's kind of Stalinism light. That 1984-ish sense whereby you have to be ready to pledge allegiance to whatever the orthodoxy of the day is, fully aware that that was diametrically opposed to yesterday's orthodoxy, 
and fully prepared to be able to re-espouse yesterday's orthodoxy tomorrow, if that's what comes down from above. Now, this matters not because simply because it just means you have a bunch of people who are constantly having to, shall I say, rewrite their lines and, and, and re-edit their historical perspectives. But it also says something about precisely the inability to be honest, which is, after all, has been at the heart of not just the, the stupid invasion of Ukraine, but of so many recent policy blunders. The fact of the matter is that if you are having to constantly prepare yourself to fit whatever is, is the line, the temptation is therefore to say nothing particularly relevant, nothing particularly significant, nothing that is going to mark you out as being especially committed to any particular policy line, because that may well not be the policy line that you want to be able to espouse tomorrow. So it is a recipe for not just blandness, and you know, let's be clear, you know, when it comes to blandness, Medvedev is in a very strong position, but also actually of incremental half measures in policy, of wait and see tactics of not actually trying to tackle serious problems in a serious way. And this, I would suggest, is very much one of the particular problems of Putinism, especially, but not in solely, late Putinism. That, to be sure, there is dramatic rhetoric, and okay, yes, there's also a war. But even before that point, there were specific grand show projects, which obviously things like the Kerch Bridge would fall into that, but these are in many ways eye-catching substitutes for re genuine systemic reform and progress. The Putinist regime, true to form, has proven incredibly timid. It knows what are the real big challenges. The big challenges that relate to diversifying the economy, improving the infrastructure, addressing the pensions gap. You know, dealing with these kind of topics requires not just a, a massive and long-term program, but a willingness to be open about the actual s systemic problems and a willingness to adopt dramatic and serious and, above all, long-term responses. Well, the chameleonic nature of, of Russian politics militates against that, I would say. That you, know, you don't want to nail your colours to any particular mast because you don't know when the ship you're on is going to start burning and sinking. So you just stay safe. But of course, if actually what you have is a policy based on beige blandness, you have to distract from that. And yes, there are the, the grand projects. But there's also a political role, and this is, I think, the third point I'd want to make, that in this respect, Medvedev is fulfilling a role that in the past people like Zirinovsky and others played, and now is also played by the particularly high-profile and toxic TV pundits like uh, Salavyov. And that is at once of, of being clown, but also scarecrow. It's a way of distracting by, you know, over-the-top statements, but made by people who are ultimately deniable. In part, it's because of their sort of relatively limited role. And although one could say, well, Medvedev, um, he actually has a powerful position as Deputy Chair of the Security Council and now having a role also with the Military Industrial Commission. But even then, the point is everybody knows about Medvedev. 
he is now sufficiently discredited, sufficiently marginalised, that no one really should take what he says too seriously. But the point is, some people will. So the role of the Scarecrows is precisely, again, once to, as I say, to, to be the unfiltered id, to say the darkest things that might be in the, the minds of more responsible figures within the government, so that other people can know what is going on. They have a sense of what the worst-case scenario is. But on the other hand, those responsible people can deny it. In some, you know, if you think of it in terms of Dmitry Peskov, Putin's press spokesperson, and Dmitry Medvedev, Putin's notional deputy. And like the figures on one of those clocks where sort of, you know, one person comes out to show that it's going to be sunny or else the other person comes out to show that it's going to be rainy. Well, they are part of one mechanism. And it's precisely because Medvedev says such barking mad nonsense that Peskov can afford to be urbane and reassuring. The necessary messages are out there and some people will pay attention and some people will allow themselves to be scared by what Medvedev says. And it is striking the degree, particularly when he bangs on about potential nuclear options, that there are people in the West who do take that seriously when they shouldn't. But the point is that fulfills a particular function. So, you know, this is a system which has evolved with a clear understanding of the, the theatricality of power. You know, once upon a time, this was very much focused on domestic politics, on you know, creating these fake political parties, the, the Surkov era dramaturgia, which made a, a soap opera of politics so that you didn't actually recognise what was going on behind the scenes was that there was one impresario and one beneficiary. Well, now I think, you know, although Surkov is, is no longer a, a figure within the administration, but this notion of dramaturgia has developed and evolved and it also speaks to the, the need to have people who will say the the unsayable from a regular diplomatic point of view Lavrov cannot say the things that Medvedev says and Lavrov shouldn't I'd like to say Lavrov wouldn't but these days I'm not quite sure how far he actually has the opportunity to say no so in that respect someone like Medvedev actually plays a kind of useful function and the fourth point I'd want to make is again to just drill a little bit more deeply into this point about Putin's loyalty to his own. Now, look, in part, this is actually for entirely self-interested reasons. First of all, because he understands that you need to demonstratively show loyalty to the people in your gang so that they will continue to feel they have reason to be loyal to you. I mean, that's something that, that Putin presumably must have learned running with street gangs when he was a teenager. Certainly, it has informed his policies, his personnel management ever since. But also it is because Putin himself clearly is worried about the potentially destabilizing effects of too much change at the very highest echelons of power. Look, he's perfectly happy reshuffling who's in charge of the military operation in the Donbass or whatever. But on the other hand, actually, if one looks at turnover at the very top, particularly within the security apparatus, it's strikingly limited. He does hold on to people. He clearly doesn't want to let people go. And in some cases, even to the point where they themselves have to petition, even beg to be allowed to go. So there is this sense that, that Putin would rather not have to have to, I wouldn't say house train or even just get used to new faces with the new agendas around him and particularly in charge of important things. 
Now, this is a further force pushing the, the rise of gerontocratic rule in Russia. So it comes from both individuals wanting to hold on to their political positions for their own interests and from above, Putin himself not pushing them out and not wanting to, to rotate them. So you do get an increasingly ageing regime. Now, you know, it has to be said, Spectator Online has some extraordinarily uh, active, what I would think of as pro-Russian trolls. So inevitably, you mention something about gerontocratic rule, and there will be the inevitably, well, what, what about Biden, eh? But the point is, we're not just simply talking about the guy at the top. We're actually talking about a, a, something that is kind of suffusing the levels of, of ministers, and even deputy ministers. You know, it actually is a, an increasingly ageing government profile. At some point, I actually want to sit down and try and do this a little bit more methodically, particularly within the security apparatus, and look at the ages of everyone, you know, again, at, at the level of deputy minister, deputy head and such like. But I think it, it, it is clear that this, this is getting older. It's also, though, it says something not just about just simply age. Age doesn't really matter all that much. What matters, though, is that there is clearly a certain correlation, not in every single case, but a, a certain correlation between a, an increasingly aging and irrigidified political system and the capacity for people to come up with new ideas and to respond to new challenges. And I think this is the particular... I don't know if tragedy is quite the right word, but, you know, but nonetheless striking figure that there are a lot of people who in their time were absolutely right for the moment. But the point is that times move on, that challenges change, that circumstances and opportunities, particularly now, you know, are, are very different from what they were two, three, five, ten years ago for Russia. And I think this again speaks to an increasing inutility an increasing incapacity of late Putinism to respond to the needs of the moment. And instead, we see kind of nostalgic politics. I mean, it is striking the extent to which, actually, if one really looks at the fundamentals of what's happening, Putin is trying to kind of recreate a sort of late Soviet Union without any kind of ideology, or an ideology beyond sort of gut patriotism and so forth. You know, whether it's in terms of, I mean, he said, we, you know, we must resist the excessive militarization of the economy. But in practice, you know, what does excessive mean? I mean, it is clear that in, you know, the, the needs of the military are becoming increasingly dominant across the economy as a whole. And it'll be quite interesting in the future whether or not they essentially have to militarize the defense industrial complex to ensure that they can operate in a time of high levels of worker famine. I mean, Russia has very low unemployment. But one of the side effects of that is that it's hard to recruit skilled workers to run your 24-7 defense industrial production. That might actually then have to sort of move into a more, for want of a better word, conscripted basis. The education system clearly is becoming increasingly uh, conscripted in its own way into support of the state. Whether it's in terms of new you know, bringing back military training within schools so that the next generation of conscripts already have a sort of basic sense of drill and how to strip a Kalashnikov and such like, or whether it's more broadly in terms of using school and higher education as a way of trying to inculcate certain patriotic values. Because you know, after all, you know, we know how well this worked in Soviet times, but ha, 
they'll still go back to it. So this is it. I think, you know, the 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 nostalgic politics that a gerontocratic regime often ends up espousing is in itself shaping the policy options that, that are adopted. You know, you have those figures within the system who clearly are aware that it's not going in the right direction and in their own small ways are, are, are trying to bring a certain degree of common sense. But there is a limit to what they can do. Broadly speaking, the ship of state is getting greyer and greyer and slower and slower and is instead moving along the routes that it is, with which it is familiar rather than arguably the trajectory which would be in Russia's best interests. So this is why I think although, you know, it's always it's always fun in a kind of awkward and horrified way to take a look at Medvedev's latest statements, which often it's worth noting, by the way, you know, this, this, this bile that he expels because, as he once said, you know, he just, he just hates these people. Not quite sure whether he was, he was talking about the West or anti-government forces at home. But nonetheless, that, that, that tends to be interspersed with, with social media pictures of, you know, leafy forests and dawn over lakes uh, as he endorses the, the glory of the Russian landscape. There is, rather pathetically, uh, clearly a little sort of poetic side to Medvedev underneath, you know, all, all this vitriol. But looking at him, I think, in this respect is useful because it does, I think, highlight some of the, the deeper processes going on and some of the reasons why, actually, we can, from the outside, be, be stunned and horrified how what appear to be a collection of, in the main, pretty smart people can keep doing so many stupid, stupid things. But anyway, you yourself are tremendously smart for having listened to the end of this podcast. Thank you very much indeed. As I said, it, it'll probably be over a week before I'm able to record my next one. But in the meantime, probably I will try and put some textual things out to patrons. Thank you. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash shadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time... Keep well. И только будь, пожалуйста, со мною, товарищ.